Smith, and this is more than one lesson. Uh, congratulations, everybody, on making it through Halloween times. I know it was very spooky and frightening. Um, all right, look, I'm just going to let you behind the curtain. We're recording this several weeks. Uh, no, I guess not several weeks, but like right before Halloween times. Um, I'm going to be out of town for three weeks, um, but I'm trying to make it so that it does not affect more than one lesson in any way. So uh, we're recording a lot of stuff in advance. So let's hope nothing big happened in the month of October that people want me to address, and I'm not. Uh, but as of right now, by the time you're listening to this, I am in Asia. Um, I don't know exactly where. I think uh by the time you listen to this, I might be in South Korea. So, or maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> if it's there, um, a lot of a lot of crazy stuff going on over there at the moment. Maybe it's calmed down by the time you're hearing this. Somehow, I doubt it. Um, but anyway, so uh, so we are going into uh, today's episode, which is about Paul King's Paddington. But before I do that, I need to bring in my co-host. Robert Hornack. Robert, how you doing? Hey, Tyler. I'm doing fine. Okay. You doing all... Here's the thing. Like, as far as listeners know, um, like, you were just on. Is that right? Yeah, because we're recording these all out of order. Right. So you were on during Halloween times. I was, will be on a Halloween times episode. But for you and me right now, it's been a long time since you've been on the show. It actually has. It's been so, a few months. It's been too long. That's what I <sighs> too say. Too long, Tyler. It's been too long. And it's uh, your you. fault, I would say, because you're just been you just been so busy. You sent an email about like something like I'm too busy for such a stupid little thing as this podcast. I don't remember. It, maybe that's how I read it. The point is, um, you've no, been you busy. Read right. with, you read it right. Okay. All right. Just making sure. Um, but uh, but yeah, you've been busy with a lot of writing projects and and that sort of thing, and mm -hmm. just work in general. And uh, you know, no, what's bizarre is actually uh, I've I've been out of work for months and months. Oh, so Some, you've just been uh, no, something happens, and I, I can't quite explain it, but I get busier when I'm not. Oh yeah, actually yeah. going to work, going into an office to work. It's like I, I sign myself up for these writing projects, whether they pay or not. You know, they yeah. just but they they become my life, they become my work, and I think because it's not. Uh, you know, it's not nine to five or right. ten to six or whatever my normal schedule would be when I'm working in TV. Um, it's more my own pace. And my own pace is I'll watch this movie instead of actually working. Sure. Um, and so things get backed up. And this past week was uh, exceptionally burdensome because of my own procrastination. Um, had a couple of all-nighters um, just a couple of nights ago. Um, and yeah, so that's why I've been saying no to you, Tyler. My own procrastination. So I do, I do take... The brunt of okay, the blame. I, I I thought I was joking, but I guess no, not. I've let you off the hook. Okay, this yeah. time. All right, I'll uh, 
Well, we'll talk about it after the show. Sure. Um, joking, of course. I'm not a principal and you're not a student. We're just two friends, or at least I thought we were. The point is, uh, we, we need to move on to talk about Paddington. Now, I'm sure many people, perhaps even my co-host here, are wondering why on earth are we talking about Paddington? Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say this, uh, Paddington, when I saw it, um, I believe I just rented it one day, uh, I had heard that it was pretty good, but I had missed it in the theater. What's the year on it again? Well, it came out in uh, the UK in 2014. 14. It came out here in 2015. Got it. And when I saw it, it was admittedly it was early enough in the year that it rocketed to my number one. And then I saw a few other things, and I think it wound up around number five or six. I don't recall exactly, but it was like firmly in my top ten and high up for a long time. And I was not ready for this movie to be what it was. The tra- I remember seeing a trailer for it, and it was marketed as like Beethoven, you know, oh, like right, where right. it's just like, oh, this. But look at all this crazy stuff he's causing. Oh, Paddington! Nobody does that. But, um, <laughs> and I remember it looked so stupid. Then I started hearing, you know, then reviews started coming out, mm. and I and reviews, you know, people from the UK were were weighing in. And uh, saying, like, this is not the actual film. The actual film has a... It's uniquely British. uh, But it also... Yes, there are those moments, but it is a remarkably charming film. It is. There's a lot of imagination and Mm -hmm. and a lot of... uh, a lot of ambition, like way more ambition than a film like this should ever really have, but as far as camera movement mm-hmm. and production design and that sort of thing. And so I thought like, okay, I'll, I'll give it a watch. And I assumed that I would enjoy it. it would, I thought it would be a nice way to spend an afternoon. And there are a couple moments where I found my, my eyes like welling up uh, mm-hmm. with tears. And then by the end of it, I was like, that was, what? You know, it wasn't mind blowing, except that it's a Paddington movie and I'm responding like this. Um, in a way it reminds me at least as far as like this genre of film and the way people responded to it. And certainly the way I responded to it, it reminded me of the babe movies. Hmm. Um, that's a good comparison, which were creative and, and completely unassuming and just created a, and they created a world, you know, in, in the case of Babe, it's, you know, a farmer, wait, farmer, like, no, it's not Hoggett, is it? That's not right. Anyway, wait, I don't know. I don't but remember. the farmer played by James Cromwell, you know, his farm, like it's in many ways, it's like, no, oh, it's just a farmhouse. Yeah. But it's also kind of the essence of a farmhouse. Right. Um, and a lot of the world of Paddington looks like the, in many cases, the essence of London. I say that having never been there. Um, and so it reminded me of Babe by way of Wes Anderson. Oh, totally. And Unmistakably. Yeah. And so... But also uh, Amelie. Sure. I kept thinking of Amelie, just the kind of dreamy, lush yeah. colors and the, uh, the sort of manifestations of, of imagination. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, just really beautiful in that way. It kind of sucks you in uh, in, a, in a dreamlike way. Yeah, so in talking about this kids' movie or whatever, we have just invoked Jean-Pierre Jeunet 
and Wes Anderson and admittedly like the Babe movies, which many, you know, I mean, I seem to recall Gene Siskel saying the Babe Pig in the City, which is an underrated film directed by George Miller, by the way. Hmm. Um, he said that that was his favorite movie hmm. of, of 98 and it is great. It is very dark. Is that the second one? That's the second one. I the never first, saw the second one. It's, uh, I have it on Blu-ray. Hmm. I'm happy to lend it to you. Warning. It is very dark. Um, you wouldn't expect it, but because now he is, Babe is a pig in the city, so now it's the essence of a city, but a dangerous city. Hmm. And uh, beautiful art direction. Is it anything like Home Alone, Lost in New York, or whatever it's called? Uh, it's like that if Kevin McAllister were a little pig. Okay. And, you know, actually, it's not like that at all. I'm okay. sorry. Um, I just realized now that there's a city. They're both in the city. Okay. Yes. Beyond that, no. Uh is it like sex in the city it's kind of like it's kind of like the cabinet of dr caligari <laughs> as far as it's like how everything. this city looks okay um so i'd highly recommend that but the point is we're talking about paddington um and just the amount of care that was taken in how the in the tone of the film making sure it was consistent even when it's being madcap that these crazy sequences with special effects that could never actually happen, um, not the least of which because it's an anthropomorphized bear, um, mm. but that there are also nice quiet moments between human characters, between Paddington and humans, uh, and that those could, uh, those could be in the same film believably, I think really speaks to a command of tone that I don't often see, certainly in a lot of family films. Um, but in most films in general, like they'll do one thing better than the other. And I find myself leaning towards that and being like, okay, all right, now it's time for the action sequences or, all right, now it's time for the ham fisted right. uh, character drama. This, I think it does all of it well. And it's, I think it's often very funny. So I really, really obviously responded to it. I rewatched it last night and I was so happy I did. Good. I'm I, always I happy it. when I watch Paddington. I'll say that. Oh, good. Um, I, I watched it again last or this morning as well, and I, I saw it the first time because you were championing it on the show at one point. One of our earlier episodes, you mentioned it and were raving about it. Yeah. It's like I hadn't seen it, so I went to see it. And then a couple of episodes later, a little discussion of Paddington was actually embedded in whatever movie we were talking about mm. at that point. I forget what that was. Um, and yeah, it, it really is a striking film. And I remember the first and the second time that I saw it, second time being this morning, uh, there's almost a level of suspense at the beginning because you know the the explorer discovers yeah. the bears and uh, the family of bears and it's like there's because of the way that's presented in sort of an, uh, a newsreel sort of way yeah which is creative in its own way um it, it wasn't it was removed enough from a version of reality that i know in other words it was a black and white newsreel right um that you didn't really have to suspend a whole lot of disbelief to believe that he was with these bears. Yeah. So the suspense is, how is this going to work? How is a little bear going to interact with human beings in modern day London? How is, is am I, what am I in for? And will I believe this? How much will I have to strain my disbelief? Um, so cut to the train sequence, the family's getting off yeah. the train <laughs> and he's, uh, Paddington is there waiting on anyone at all to be kind to him. Yeah. The family goes by, uh, Hugh Bonneville looks mm -hmm. at the bear and goes, "Don't look! Don't don't look at the bear." So instantly, you know that this is probably something that happens all the time. It's like there's probably anthropomorph anthropomorphized somethings yeah. around town for whatever reason. You never see him again, but or any anything else like Paddington. However, the the way he reacts to the bear and he says something like, uh, 
uh, well, I've got it written down. Oh, there's some sort of bear over there. He's probably selling something. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you get the, you, you buy the entire world with his reaction to the bear sitting there. It's not like, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a bear and he's yeah. talking to us. It's more like, that's something that we've seen before. We're tired of seeing it. We don't want to see that anymore. See, I, t- I read it different. I do think that Paddington is the only animal like this out there, but this is a this speaks to the cynicism of London now. Okay, that's even better. That rather than hey, there's a bear over there, and it seems to be more human than most bears. Rather than look at that, it's just they jump immediately to what does it want? Yep. What does it want from me? Right. Uh, it's probably selling something. Let's keep going. And then when Paddington is telling his story, mm-hmm. rather than marvel at the fact that he is telling a story, <laughs> Hugh Bonneville is like, "Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> you know, Here the we go. So, here's the sob story." Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- and especially because the the film emphasizes, you know, what the explorer says London is versus what it has become, yeah. which is hostile to strangers or just completely uh, disinterested in them. Yeah. And it, it may be suspicious. Let's say suspicious, which he clearly is. Um, I would say, just people that aren't like them. I would posit, okay. if I can say that word, sure, and not sound too pretentious, I would posit that uh, Hugh Bonneville's reaction to Paddington in the train station in that moment and the, the moment when he says, well, here we go, yeah. puts the whole movie, it doesn't necessarily follow through on this at every step of the way, but in that moment, it puts the movie in satire zone. Sure. Because now we're looking at Paddington as we would any other vagrant yep. or any other homeless person or any, anyone else is selling something on the street or has a petition they want you to sign, whatever it is. Paddington represents those people, that gamut of people, those annoyances in city life. Yeah. From that point on in the movie, they don't necessarily, the movie doesn't necessarily address it that way again, maybe a couple of times. I think there's a few times. but it, So it doesn't sustain itself as a satire, but it definitely is a satire in the minds of those that are making the film because yeah. of those couple of moments that they give Hugh Bonneville. And the idea of when, when they show up with Paddington on the street and Peter Capaldi is looking out the window, now he's kind of a crazy old man. But and he ne- he never officially says there goes the neighborhood, mm-hmm. but that is kind of his sure. attitude. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and there aren't that many. That, there really aren't that many characters no. uh, in the in the film. But uh, but the idea that Paddington is met with suspicion, hostility, mild scorn, scorn, some indifference perhaps, and then in in the case of Nicole Kidman, just you know. It's completely predatory. Um, You know, I do think that, and that he is also completely out of his element. He is just, he is looking for anyone to be nice to him. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the fact that it is so, that you really get the impression that if Sally Hawkins character had not come back, he could still be standing in that station. Waiting on anyone. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I feel like that speaks volumes. And I do think Jim Broadbent's story also speaks to some of the themes of the film. Um, and the idea of looking for a friendly face when you are, uh, displaced. Right. Um, and, uh, and those moments and the idea, I'm a kind of a sucker for, uh, makeshift family stories hmm. and admittedly this is a family but uh and there's this new addition and they have to decide where he fits or if he fits at all um i've seen versions like uh, uh versions of the story in like the blind side which i did not like um because it felt false mm-hmm. 
And how strange that this, that that, a movie based on a true story, feels more false than Paddington, <laughs> which is about a bear. Um, but that's the thing is, there's a line in, there are similar lines here. Um, in The Blind Side, someone says to Sandra Bullock, you're changing that boy's life. And then she goes, no, he's changing mine. Oh, boy. So I hear that, and I was like, yeah, but the film has given no instant, has given no evidence of that. Her life looks exactly the same, except now this kid is in it, and his life has absolutely been changed. Yeah. So, and then there's a similar line Julie Walters says, this family needs that bear just as much as he needs this family. I, and I like that, I like the line partially because it's not about the change, it's about the need. And she fully acknowledges that that bear does need this family, mm -hmm. like he needs something. But that this family has become so set uh, in their routine, uh, likely as a function of Hugh Bonneville's character, that they needed something to come along and shake it up. And Paddington does shake it up. like. He, he ruins their house on like two occasions right. and there's a wonderful line where he's like I'm sorry about the fire and I'm sorry about the water <laughs> you know like, uh, like the fire and the flood mm -hmm. like he literally brings like these elements down on them the wrath uh, of God yeah but uh, but that's the thing is is the kids respond to him and the mother responds to him albeit in, in kind of different ways. And Hugh Bonneville is like, well, I have to deal with this thing. Oh, but this thing is a living, breathing, not person, but might as well be. Yeah. And you can't simply deal with a person. You have to engage with them. You have to interact with them. And in doing so, anytime you engage and interact with another person, it will have an impact on you. And so I feel like, I feel like Paddington does a much better job of showing the changing of lives back and forth than a film like The Blind Side and the idea of bringing someone new into the into the family and then standing with that person as a family. I think also a lot of it has to do with in The Blind Side there's an entire family there but it really just boils down to Sandra Bullock's character. Mm. Um, whereas this it really is everybody in the family that Paddington is relating to. It, that's definitely true. However, it's interesting to me that the that the movie is clearly once you really think about it after the fact, it's not about the kids at all. It's a it's a kids movie that is about the adults in the family. Yeah, and it's about the interaction of these this uh, married couple who are clearly yeah. having issues. Yeah, um, and the bear comes along, and because of the, you know, the discombobulation of the house, the mm -hmm. near destruction of the house. Um, actually brings them together in a way yeah. that uh, is obviously expected in this kind of movie, but is, would not be expected in real life. Yeah. But it's interesting that, I mean, almost at every turn that it could have been about the kids stepping forward and doing something, it's really right. Hugh Bonneville and Sally Hawkins doing yeah. something. Um, which I think the first time I saw it, maybe one of the reasons I didn't really take to it as much was because I wanted it to be about kids. I wanted mm. it to be a kids movie. Yeah. There's no way it's not a kids movie. It's still very much 100% a kids movie. Yeah. But I think that probably more adults would come away from this movie going, oh, okay, yeah, there's, there are things. I mean, if they're going to be reflective at all, self-reflective right. at all, it would be, um, there are things in my life that I've built up as walls that keep me from yeah. reacting to people or accepting people who are different from me. And Whereas kids, I think, are naturally built to not see those things. Um, Here's generally speaking. 
here's my feeling about that because I would agree with you that the two parents are more dynamic characters than the children. Uh, the children do have certain traits, you know, some of them are, you know, the, the daughter is more resistant to Paddington and then he kind of wins her She's over. She's suffering from embarrassment after all. Abs- of course. Um, and, but he kind of wins her over and she explains like, ah, you know, I'm new at the school and I'm not really sure how to make that work for me. Um, and he shows that he knows what it's like. And so there, I think there are enough moments for kids to latch onto, but I also think that you know, this is a kid's film not merely because there are kids and not because the kids are the leads. It's because I think any kid can look at this and say, yeah, I wish my dad were more like that. You know, when you, when you are a kid, yes, you're thinking about yourself, but you're also just looking at the world around mm-hmm. you and gathering information and trying to figure out how it works and trying to navigate it. And, and that starts with your parents. You know, I'm trying to navigate my parents and figure out what they're all about. And you hear over and over again, the way the two kids talk about their parents, their father specifically. Mm -hmm. And, and I feel like kids can relate to that. They like, they can relate to these, to the, the children in the film precisely because the children in the film are looking at the, at everybody else and trying to determine what, what they're all about. Mm. So I do think that, uh, along those lines, I almost as a companion film, but I decided not to, I almost picked Mary Poppins, Hmm. um, which yes, is about the children, but from an arc standpoint, it's very much about the father. You know, that's why the, that movie saving Mr. Banks, that's what that's all about. Um, but I chose not to because Mary Poppins literally shows up to fix the family and she makes everything better instead of worse. And she needs nothing. And she needs nothing. Yes. And then she fixes the family and leaves. Mm -hmm. Whereas Paddington, no, he is part of the family. And, uh, that's something that I, and it seemed organic to me. That's the other thing. I, it didn't seem false. It felt like these characters actually do go on this journey. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do like, and I do like uh, Hugh Bonneville's arc, and I I love the moment where you see what he used to be, where he and Sally Hawkins, she's pregnant, and like they're clearly these these uh, freewheeling hippies, mm-hmm. and they're like, don't, we're not going to let this change us, right? No, absolutely not. And then they go into the hospital, and they come out, and he's all dressed up in he's a an suit, actuary, he's, yeah. suddenly, and he's purchased a uh, a beige car mm-hmm. because it's a calming color. Yes, and you know I don't have. Uh, any children, but uh, I imagine, not that I'm very freewheeling right now, but I do imagine that really just changing everything about your life and you can get so focused on keeping what you have that you forget to actually realize what it is you have. Right. Um, And I don't know if I'd say he's actually neglecting the kids, but I do think he's not really seeing them. Would you say that's a fair assessment? No, I I, I fully agree. Um, uh, pretty much at every turn, he is uh, not calling them stupid, but that by his attitude, he's essentially calling them stupid or yeah. d- dismissing them for whatever it is that they probably need, which is his attention and love. Yeah. Um, it's definitely about him. Oh, no question. It has become about him, even though it's it's interesting because he he makes that change when they're born. It's like suddenly it is about them to him, but mm-hmm. then that itself, that need to protect them becomes more than they are to him. The rule yeah. becomes more important to him yeah. than what the rule is set to protect. It is possible to be selfish and self-centered 
while thinking of other people because it could be like I don't I don't want to lose my family and and that's as opposed to I don't want anything to happen to them I don't want them to get hurt like there's a there's a possessive quality to it like no this is my family and I mm-hmm. I can't stand to lose them and I do think that there's and of course we all feel that I would right. not want anything to happen to my wife because I know what would I know how that would feel it would feel terrible um but yeah i do think that he's someone who you know in the in the form of safety uh is really trying to insulate himself from pain um or the potential pain of losing his family who he loves but suddenly like the most important thing is insulation let's make the the companion movie actually tv show called breaking bad <laughs> it's like I the darkest, so. bleakest version of that would be of what we're talking about is yeah. Walter White. You know, everything yeah. he does in the very first episode is like clearly this man loves his family enough yeah. to break the law yeah. um, to that degree. Well, what happens is he gets corrupted by everything that that move creates. So, and then then there's a, a very well acted scene at the very end where he's talking to his wife and. He's been saying, like, I've been doing this for you. He's been saying it, you know, the mm-hmm. whole time. And then finally just says, like, I-, I did it for me. Yeah. I, I was good it. at it and I liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that I think everyone can can relate to. And there, though there are, there, I have major issues with bringing, Breaking Bad. I don't love it as much as some people. Um, but moments like that, I feel like, oh, that's great. Even even though they're just kind of declaring theme, I'm okay with it because it's well-performed. Like, yeah. Brian Cranston, I have no interest in him as a film actor. I feel like he overplays things, but somehow I'm on glad TV, you said that. I think that's. I think more people are coming around on that. Coming around to that, yeah. it wasn't obvious right away. People were so on board hmm. with Breaking Bad. I, I and and he's great in it. I, yeah, I can't disagree. That's a great show. It's a fantastic show, and thematically, it's it works itself out in probably the most perfect way of any show I've ever seen. However, along the way watching him kind of do what I would call shtick, actually. Sure. At a lot of moments. I'm like, why is he still hanging on to uh, Malcolm in the Middle type reactions? That's the thing. is that, And you know what? I, and again, I'm okay, somehow I'm okay with the bigness of his performances in t- like on TV. I don't know why that is. Maybe because there's a larger sample size and you're able to see smaller moments as mm-hmm. well. But on, in film, everything just is gigantic. Drive is a perfect example. He's got the limp. Yeah. Everything about that is like, hey, look, I'm making a making myself look like I have a limp instead yeah. of I have a limp. Yeah. He really does seem to have a hard time internalizing mm-hmm. uh, his characters. And well said. And I and it, for a long time I was the only person that was saying this. And I not Wait to imply that not to imply that other people were listening to me, <laughs> but I think the more hmm. the more acting he did, I think a lot more people were saying like. You know oh, what? Wait a minute. He like maybe he was just great in certain roles. I do love him and Malcolm in the Middle, and I think he is easily the best part of Breaking Bad. Um, but uh, how do we get on there? <laughs> because it, it, because it's actually thematically the same. Oh yes, yes, that's the, right. The the father who sets up rules or, or right. does something for the sake of his children that that becomes right the downfall, right. Um, his own downfall. And while that could be the theme of today's episode. Um, it actually is not. We've done that theme before when we talked about the proposition with the companion film, The Godfather. Uh, that um, wasn't me, though. So that was not you. So I guess we could. I could just re-record Rehash. every episode with you. What do you think of that? Starting now. All right. 
Episode one, Milk, with the companion film Philadelphia. Oh, my. Let's anger people all over again. So, uh, yeah, that's a long time ago. I, Did people get angry? Yeah. Oh. Yes, very much so. Huh. Uh, people had a lot of, uh, certain people had a lot of theories about how I would, the type of parent I would be. Oh, wow. Uh, based on that episode. See, that was before me, though. You needed this, the calming, yeah. saving That was BR before me. Robert. Before Robert. Uh, yes. If you'd been there, people would have been like, you know what? I think I'm actually on board with this. <laughs> um, but yeah, one thing, uh, and I, I had read reviews that talked about Paddington in this way, and it did not seem like a stretch uh, that... They were talking about it politically. They were talking about it as a film about immigrants. Mm. It is that, yes. Sure, but I think it's bigger than that as well. I think to as as big as the concept of immigration and people moving from one place to another uh, across the world, obviously that's that's a, a big deal. Um, but I do think that it's also about just outsiders and people who just come into our lives. It could be come into your country come into your church, your workplace, whatever it is, and they just do not know how things work here. And that can be frustrating. It can be frustrating to, to have to like stop everything and explain. And, but of course, we've all been in that situation at some point. Um, I hate starting, I, I haven't had to do it in a while, thank God. Um, I hate starting a new job because it's basically, it's like, hey, do you want to... Uh, you want to screw up for a few weeks? Just completely mess everything up and in make front of everyone in front of everyone and make things harder for them and make them kind of resent you a little bit for a while. No. Well, I'm sorry. You have no choice. This is yeah. how it works. Um, so yeah, that, uh, so I think everybody can relate to that, but I think it doesn't hurt to be reminded of that. Mm-hmm. Um, especially. So the reason, you know, one of the reasons that critics talked about it in regards to immigration is because the last couple of years and maybe longer than that, the last several years, um, there's been a, a lot of talk about immigration and illegal immigration mm-hmm. and w- what our attitude should be towards that. Um, and here and in England. Obviously. Yeah. Oh, of course. Um, and this is before Brexit. Yeah, and this was Oof. before this was before the 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 you know the primaries in mm-hmm. which Trump made uh, immigration and you know building a wall and all that a like huge deal. Yeah. made that that was the cornerstone of his campaign. Um, and I think if that hadn't been, so I don't think you would have had the alt right. Like he built mm-hmm. it on. No, the alt right was already there. They were, but I don't think they would have played as big of a role. But because he gave them an issue that they actually cared about, like if he had focused on, I don't know, tax reform, I don't think you would have seen them quite so rapidly come out in favor of him. Because at that point, he's saying what all the other candidates are saying. But when he's saying like such definitive things like, we have a problem, we have all these illegal immigrants, we are going to build a physical wall between us and this other country. Like these are very big and dynamic, broad strokes. also, they're concrete, I mean, yeah. so to speak. They're concrete images that you can hold on to, build a wall, drain the swamp, that yes. kind of, those sort of things. Like things that you can see in your mind, whether they are ever going to exist or not. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that's the other thing is, uh, though I did not vote for Donald Trump, let's say, let's say I did, let's say I was in favor of building a wall. Mm-hmm. Um, there, were there actually people who thought he was going to build that wall? Oh, sure. There still are. 
yeah, that's not going to happen. He's not going to do anything. He doesn't know how to do anything. It's sorry, this has gotten political, and, and we thought it was you know Paddington. we're going to try we're going to try to avoid it. But um, anyway, so we can we can put that aside. But um, but yeah, uh, so it is definitely in the last you know in many ways I think Paddington has become more relevant. Sure, um, and I do. One of the moments that brought uh, a tear to my eye uh, when I first saw it was Jim Broadbent's little story, right? Which I think is so beautifully and creatively illustrated in a way that you write is very Amelie esque, um, <clears throat> where he is a, a German immigrant uh, from the from the war, you know, World War Two. So he was sent to England by his family uh, to get out of uh, a terrible situation uh, when he was very young and he was taken in, but it wasn't, you know, it was very difficult for him. And so he owns this shop and there's this little toy train and the film like zooms into the toy train and then you see like people in it and his story is being reenacted there's no particular reason you need to do that. You could just show a flashback, but it brings it into this world. And of course it's not physical. It's, it's, you know, that's just for us. It's not actually, there aren't actual little people on that train. Um, but the visualization of it was so unexpected and delightful, but also the story that he was telling. Well, it's a, it's a memory that's so potent and palpable to him yeah. to this day. Yeah. It's right. Why, there. why wouldn't it be right there? And uh, he ends his story in a way that I really adore, where he says, my body had traveled fast, but my heart, she took a little longer to arrive. Right. Oh, <laughs> and of course, Jim Broadbent is just such a marvelous actor. And he, he has the ability um, because he... he <laughs> He, he has the ability to like kind of pull goofy faces, uh, which you can see in like Moulin Rouge and Harry Potter movies. Um, but he also, and in a movie like this, he's doing this kind of over-exaggerated German accent and all that. And he has this goofy hair. It plays though. A hundred percent. And in that moment, like it is, cause he also has done a lot of work with Mike Lee. And in that moment, it was mention. just as harrowing as anything he's done there. And it's such, it's such a, a sentiment. And the way he says it, he says it with a certain degree of mournfulness, but also the recognition that like, it was a long time ago. I'm here now. This is my home now. But like, but it was tough. That was a tough time for me as a kid. Yeah. Um, and it's such a, it's so potent, so beautiful, um, delivered so well. And I do think that it's a couple weeks ago. I talked about um, political movies, movies that I think mm. liberals should see, movies I think conservatives should see, and then movies I think both of them should see. Um, and one of the films that I thought conservatives should see is called uh, Alan Brista, um, which is made in the seventies, and it's about uh, a, a, a young American man who, who. What was that? American film. I. Well, I mean, it's it's mostly in Spanish. I don't remember who directed it, honestly. Oh, what's the title again? Alan Brista. Alan Brista. Alam Brista. All one word. That's, I've never um, heard this. I believe it just translates to immigrant. Mm. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but I remember really liking it. Um, I had to review it for uh, Battleship Pretension. Um, it was released on uh, Criterion, so it is it is uh, available now. Um, but, you know, and it's about this young worker who, you know, immigrates illegally from, sorry, migrates 
Right? Sure. Immigrate? That's, is that a word? Immigrate? Immigrate. I, there's, I, there's E and I. Ah, okay. Well, either one. Um, but like when I say migrate, it's like, well, that's like, that's like birds. He journeys. He journeys, yes. Uh, Sojourns. Uh, into the U.S. and just gets, you know, one crappy job after another. And you realize like, this is not, this is not easy. This is not an easy life for him. It is uh, very difficult. He's trying to get a little, bun- a little bit of money to live. And then also, often, this happens a lot, send money back home. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, very, it's a very powerful film. And here's the thing. I don't totally know where I stand on the idea of immigration uh, from a policy standpoint. You know, the libertarian in me says, like, hey, let's get those borders as open as possible. But I also recognize that it's a dangerous world and people can exploit that. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, so where where do I fall? And honestly, I don't know. Um, but what I will say is that the people who have a very firm idea of like, hey, we just, we got to get them out of here. I think you can still have that attitude. You can still say like, hey, there are, there are laws and there is a legal way to, to come here and these people didn't do it and it is kind of unfair to the people that are waiting. I think that's a, I think that's a perfectly reasonable argument, but I think it also helps to visualize who we are talking about and the people that, uh, that it affects the most. Yes, it could, it could uh, deny dangerous people uh, an opportunity to come here, at least one opportunity to come here. Um, but I'd say predominantly it deals with people who are just looking to get by, and this is not even that great of a way to get by, uh, at least initially. And so, you know, when I look at padding, and, and I think many of these people, many of the people would prefer to stay home if it allowed for them to, to live a good life. Um, and certainly, you know, when you get into the idea of refugees, like I'm sure they'd prefer to stay at their home, but they could be killed sure. uh, if that happens. And so, you know, when you look at, at a film like Paddington, I think that it it's very helpful to see somebody who is displaced. Like it's worth noting that he doesn't just decide to go to London. It happens because of a tragedy uh, in darkest Peru, um, that takes, you know, a loved one from him. And eventually he just decides like, well, this, I can't be here anymore. So where am I going to go? He's not just casually immigrating. He's actually a refugee. Yeah, very much so. And, um, and that he is met with hostility, suspicion, and just isolation. You know, people just don't want any part of him. And the fact that he does take a while to acclimate, um, to the world around him. And and at times as I watch, it's of course funny, but it's also very frustrating to see him like try to figure out tape, uh, you know, from a tape dispenser. And yes, some of it is like this weird Rube Goldbergian, uh, uh, series of events, but yeah, like if this, if this bear came into my house and caused this level of damage, I probably wouldn't want him to stay around. Sure. Um, and so in that same way, I'm sure there are people that come into this country or other countries and I'm not sure, I'm not saying that they do a, a horrendous amount of damage, but they just don't necessarily know the customs here any more than we would know the customs if we moved to another country ourselves. And it would probably be very frustrating. Um, there was a time I was working at Blockbuster in Chicago and this woman came in, she had a very thick accent. I couldn't really make out what she was saying a lot of the time. And she was trying to dispute something and I couldn't really tell what it was. Mm. And I was getting frustrated and it's like, well, it's not necessarily her fault. She's speaking the best English she can. Right. And so like 
and both of us were just getting increasingly frustrated. Um, and I, and I, I like to think that I was frustrated with the situation, but honestly, I was probably just, I wasn't mad. I wasn't going to say like, speak better English. It wasn't that. Um, but it was just like, oh, this is, this would be easier if the accent wasn't quite so thick and sure. I could, cause I want to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're making it difficult by, by doing nothing. Like you haven't done anything wrong. And, uh, so I think, I think we, you know, we've all had that experience. And then I've also been in other countries where I don't speak their language and they get very frustrated yeah, with me. I had a, uh, an experience, a very, here's a good example okay. of this from my own life. Uh, several months ago, we housed a woman who is a coworker of a friend of ours. So our friend works here in town in LA, um, but she was having someone brought in for a month from Italy. Uh, because this woman was going to be like uh, their representative in another country, but she had to come to LA to learn some stuff. She has to go to Dubai for a mm-hmm. couple of things, and uh, but she's from Italy. So she's from a very southern po- po- portion of the boot of mm-hmm. Italy, but just down south by the Mediterranean. Um, so she's here for a month. We we housed her for a month, and yeah. she was a very kind woman, uh, probably about thirty, mm-hmm. and th- she was. <laughs> She was kind, but she was also brash. Okay. And she was very uh, proud of her Italianness. Yeah. And she would constantly call us out for things that we were doing as Americans that were the wrong way. Right. Um, and my feeling always, like for the first couple of weeks, was like, oh, I just I need to hold my tongue. She's our guest. Yeah. Finally, I got so frustrated that I was like, I got tight-lipped as I do whenever I get frustrated with somebody. Yeah. I just like leaned in and I said you can't keep telling us that we're doing things wrong. You're a guest in our home. Yeah. And, uh, and we're not doing it wrong. We're doing it American. We're doing it yeah. the way we always do it. And this is our custom. This is our culture. Um, a great example, sort of a, a tangent of that uh, example is we went to the Getty, which has, uh, you know, a ton of Italian statues. And I've actually artwork. never been there. Um, I know I need to go. It's actually the first time we were there. She wanted to go because of this. Oh, wow. There was an Italian, I don't know if it's always Italian uh, artwork there, but it was fairly well all Italian there. Mm -hmm. And she had this sense of entitlement about everything that she was showing us. And she was telling us this was wrong, like the plaque was wrong. And we're like, it's not wrong. And she was like, these are just, uh, these are mock-ups of of these items. We're not, no, these are actual statues. She's like, no, it's not. Anyway, all of this to say that she was very, very much, uh, I would say European. Europeans tend to be much more in your face about what they believe, or a little bit pushy yeah, we, with their personalities. And no, no offense to European listeners, but uh, yeah, Jen and I uh, did Airbnb for a while, and we had a few Europeans, and they're super nice. They were also very critical of Los Angeles. Exactly. Yeah. So it's so. it's not like you want to hold it against them or make that how you evaluate them as a person, but at the right. same time, that's kind of their attitude the whole time that they're here. So it was difficult, and but, it reminded me of um, a, another good companion piece, or at least a flip side to Paddington, would be this movie that I kept thinking of, again, while I was watching it, hmm. uh, this genre noir movie called Bodu Save from Drowning. I haven't seen it. It's a great movie. It's like early 30s, I think, maybe mid-30s, and it's uh, this upper-crust, cr- upper-class, uh, aristocratic, rich businessman mm-hmm. uh, in his very nice mansion-like home 
sees and who is very very much wanting everyone to know that he's a humanitarian type person yeah sees from his window a bridge that you know is over a, a, a river mm-hmm. and he sees this this vagrant this bum if you will who's about to commit suicide yeah. because he's lost something we, we get a little bit of backstory in him so he says i'm going to show everyone how good of a person i am i'm going to bring this person to my home and help them yeah so he brings bodu or budo i don't know how to pronounce his name uh, into his home to stay with him in his home. Well, you think this is going to be like a, a moment where, kind of Paddington-like, where it's good for both of them that they're there. Yeah. But the truth of what happens is the aristocrat regrets it from the minute, from moment one, because yeah. Bodu is this brash, um, pushy, uh, overly sexualized guy who's like hitting on the help hmm. and just taking whatever food he wants and kind of making a wreck of the place. Very much like Paddington, but not for a comic effect. Well, it's obviously a sat- it's a satire, so it's for comic yeah. effect. But it's more realistic in that if you were to actually bring somebody, say, from uh, Las Palmas Avenue in, in Hollywood or something <laughs> yeah. into your home, it might be more like that. Yeah. So basically, they made the movie um, Down and Out in Beverly Hills right. based on right. on this movie. And it's much more, I think, of a realistic sort of outcome of this kind of story. Yeah. Um, you don't get the feel good sort of. We all have learned. We all have learned something about life and about getting along with everyone. This is probably more realistic. However, you kind of need both because they're both sort of extremes of the same point. Yeah, and I think uh, a common theme here is uh, a certain like a certain self regard because I think there can be an element of like if you if you bring someone in like out of the goodness of your heart. It's very possible to get self-congratulatory oh, sure. about it. And yeah. when you do, and then they don't do what you would like them to do, it's like, no, 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 there's a script here. I'm a good mm-hmm. person, and you're kind of saintly. And you change my life for the better. And I change yours, too. Fade out. Play and along, do, and then, play along, pal. And then it turns out they're a human being who have their, they have yeah. their own foibles and you know their own way of doing things. And suddenly it's like, hey, no, no. Don't you realize what I've done for you? Right. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, I definitely think that there's, you know, some would say like there's the uh, the idea of the white savior, like sure. which shows up in movies all the time. Um, and I think we can ha- we can have that even when it's when we're dealing with other white people, just the idea of a savior complex. Um, and that's, you know. So sometimes we can be hostile, but other times we can be very happy with ourselves for not being hostile. Oh, sure. It's it's sort of the uh, the other arm of what we keep hearing about in the news these days, the white privilege thing. Yeah. It's like, well, uh, yeah, because I am so-called white and all that mm-hmm. that implies, I can give you things. Right. And you are to be appreciative of whatever I give you yeah. because you're worse off than I am. And in some cases that's true because of the, the, the way the system has developed over centuries in our country. Right which is terrible. Um, but at the same time, it's, uh, it's, it's extremely helpful to see movies like Paddington that or even Bodu Save from drowning where you, it, they kind of put you in your place a little bit. It's like, you know what? My feelings of superiority are, are worthless essentially because yeah. <laughs> I, I have my human foibles as well. I'm not perfect yeah. just because I come from the socioeconomic class or whatever. I will tell a very embarrassing story. I love these about you about, Oh, oh. um, well, I try not to say them. They're the, you know what? They're the stories that I'm okay telling because they're embarrassing in a very specific way. Uh, and that, and then it's like, I tell them and look how vulnerable I'm being. <laughs> this is a story I am not comfortable telling, but here we go. I can't wait. Jen and I were in Switzerland. 
And there are multiple legs to the trip. Uh, the last one being uh, staying in this small town because Jen was shooting a wedding. And all the guests were staying in like the one big hotel in town. Um, but it was, eh, there was kind of a, it, it almost felt like a hostel as well. Hmm. And so, uh, so we were all there for like a day or two. And while Jen was shooting, like I was just going to like do some reading or something like that. And, uh, but also we had like our laundry was dirty. So I went down to, uh, the laundry room and by the way, the, like the bride was uh, American. So there were a lot of Americans around. Um, and so I talked to this, this one woman who had used like the washer and dryer and she said, it's a little bit complicated, but you know, you can figure it out. And I was like, yeah, all right. So I tried to figure it out and I did not. And I wound up breaking it. <laughs> oh, no, uh, I broke the handle off of it because I was trying to get it open. And it turns out there was a button you could push to open it, but I couldn't read. I believe it was German. Um, hmm. and, uh, and I was so frustrated with myself. And then the next day, wedding day, like the superintendent of the building. Well, and also my, our clothes were, were in there. So everyone knew, well, nobody knew that, oh, those, those are Jenny and Tyler's clothes. But they knew soon enough uh, when they saw my Nostromo shirt in there. And, um, and, so, and so the guy talked to like the, the groom. Hmm. And say so like, hey, what, what are we going to do about this? The groom has a lot to worry about. Yes. And so then he talks to Jen. Mm. Jen talks to me. And, you know, everybody is mad at me. Oh, my gosh. In Switzerland. <laughs> and I'm very upset with myself. You'd think uh, that people would be neutral about it in Switzerland. I know. Yeah, suddenly they're really opinionated about that things. That saved up anger all these <laughs> centuries for you. Um, yeah, you know what? Maybe I should have come back and said you know what? I've got a beef with you. What do you think about that? <laughs> um, and so, uh, so Jen and I talked about like what we could do. And so I, I walked into town and I got some cash, uh, cause I had talked with the superintendent and he spoke very broken English. In fact, I think we wound up using like an interpreter. Hmm. Um, and, uh, I kind of got a vague estimate of how much that would be worth. And so we went and got money and I gave him more than the estimate and he was very happy um, and gave me a big hug. Oh. And, uh, and I sort of worked out and I just kept saying, I'm sorry. And, and he's like, he goes, Oh, it's, you know, it's like, we expect he, that from he, you didn't, Americans. he didn't say these things happen. He said something. And then the interpreter said, Oh, these things happen. And I wonder what he really said. Well, he definitely seemed upbeat. I'll Good. say that. Um, and, but the thing is that, so yeah, things, things worked out and obviously we wound up spending money we weren't anticipating, but like, I just felt so, I mean, I felt very Paddington-esque. Mm -hmm. Now, immediately I didn't flood the hotel or set anything on fire, but I made it, I really inconvenienced the people that, that lived there, the people that worked there. Right. And I felt so, I still feel bad. I still feel very embarrassed uh, at that. Um, and... And literally I was, I was a foreigner who tried to do something and made things worse. And are you like, me? and I appreciated his, he was frustrated for a while. Um, and then he calmed down and then, uh, then, you know, I gave him some, I gave him the money and then he was happy, but like, he seemed to kind of calm down on his own, which I appreciated. Right. Um, I think he was just kind of 
figuring out like, okay, well, I guess this kind of thing happens. Um, but I appreciated that. Um, I appreciated like the lack of condemnation Sure, because it's possible that after, you know, after I gave him some money to like replace or fix the washer, um, he, he still could have been mad. He still could have said like, yeah, well now this is a thing I have to do. Um, but no, he was very friendly and forgiving and I appreciate it. If that. I was in that scenario, I know how I would feel. Okay. Um, I felt that way, obviously many, many times in my life right here in good old USA. Yeah. Um, with other Americans. But if I was overseas, I've been overseas once really, mm-hmm. um, I can only count the one time I went to England and Ireland with my wife uh, a few years ago. And I, I always get the sense, or I got the sense while I was there, that probably they think it's almost like European privilege or English privilege. Sure. Because I think that they probably look, I, I just assume that people in, in Europe think of Americans as a bunch of dumb hicks. Yeah. Um, like, we're the, we're the kids, we're the teenagers of the world because we're yeah. such a young country. Yeah. And we don't really have experience in anything we try. We eventually mess up in some way and make everyone mad at us. Um, seems like that happens a lot. And so, yeah. while I was over there, I was, like, very conscious of this. And if I was in the scenario you just described, I would assume that his kindness toward me at the end was more like a pat on the head. Like, well, sure. we kind of expect that from Americans. You know, they're going to come here and they're going to break our washer. Yeah. Um, and maybe every now and then they'll be... Uh, you know, dumb enough to actually pay for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and even that's making him happy. It's like, oh, yeah. I got a good one here on the line, so I'm going to pull re- reel him in. Sure. Um, I, I don't know if that's just like my own personal self-esteem that spills out into those kind of areas as well, or if that's the truth. Well, and I do, yeah, I mean, I definitely, when I've gone, you know, when we went to, Jen and I have been to, uh, hang on, Columbia. Uh, Bogota, Colombia, and then we went wow, to New Zealand and Switzerland. Yeah. And every place, I feel like I should, I need to represent Americans, and and it's just like, what? Why? And in the same, and in the same way, I'm sure that that woman that was staying with you from from Italy, maybe she felt like she needed to represent Italians. Uh, I think she and, did. And and also when we're insecure, like we kind of run to the things we know to show that Mm. we know things like, you know, I went to home Depot the other day because I had broken a weed whacker that I, uh, (laughs) that I purchased, um, by putting the wrong kind of gas in and not mixing it with oil as the instructions said to do Uh, that I read. Was it in German? Um, no good old English. Um, Although worded poorly, but anyway, um, so I went in and the guy like explained what I had done and I was able to trade it, uh, for one that I had not destroyed and, (laughs) and I felt so terrible, but what I want, but I wanted to be like, I can edit photos really well. (laughs) I'm not totally in, like I wanted to assert that this does not represent all of me. Right. Um, and so, and that's the thing is, so to bring it back to something like Paddington, he really doesn't bring anything officially to the family. Like nothing tangible. Whereas the damage he does is very tangible. But like what he brings is like heart and a certain attitude. Well, that's not, you can't measure that. You can't quantify that. And so it's much, it'd be much easier to look at uh, the damage that he's done or the negative aspect of his being there. And in the same way, like, let's, let's look at immigration. Like anytime, you know, you look at, well, I'm trying to think of like what my fellow conservatives have said. Um, well, you can point out like when bad people have come over 
have exploited, uh, you know, a weakness in, in our borders. It and have, happens. It does. Absolutely. Um, you know, drug cartels and all that sort of thing. Um, that sounded dismissive. It's a very big deal and people have died and it's unfortunate, but, uh, you know, they point to that. That is a very, very, uh, that's a very tangible thing when it's like drugs, criminals, death. Got it. Um, whereas if someone comes over and just lives a quiet life and is just trying to work and raise a family here, well, you're not really going to see that. Certainly. I mean, we might see it here living in Los Angeles, but if you live in, you know, Vermont or Montana or something like that, you're not going to see that. You might, you might hear about it, but you're not going to see it. And so, whereas you'll absolutely hear about the criminals because, well, that makes the news. Right. And so, um, so it's, a movie like Paddington is good precisely because it, it, I was going to say it humanizes, it's a bear, <laughs> um, but uh, it humanizes yeah. that struggle of being a stranger in a strange land and you don't have much to really contribute except you. Well, it ties in, uh, interestingly, another Jim Broadbent movie, mm-hmm. but we talked about this last time I was on, was uh, Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. Which is, we talked about it in terms of nostalgia. Was that the last time you were on? Well, I mean, yeah, as far as... While. Uh, th- I think that was the last one I did. Okay. Brooklyn and Midnight in Paris, because we were talking about right. essentially nostalgia, the, the value yeah. of thinking about home and the, the consequences of, of that being too much of yeah. your thought life. Um, but it also ties into this because it's it's very much about the the immigrant experience yeah. um, in, in, a, in good and bad ways. And that movie, uh, it was... I don't, I wouldn't say Paddington is a subtle movie because it's kind of a broad comedy in a lot yeah. of ways. It's very beautiful in, in how it renders that. But, um, but it's still a subtle movie in terms of its theme. I, I think that the things that we're talking about aren't yeah. necessarily what, uh, what's the director's name? Paul King. Paul King would necessarily talk about at a Q and a necessarily. Right. Um, if it came up, he would maybe. Whereas that movie, I think it, it's a, uh, it's subtle in a different way in that it's, um, the, the subtlety and uh, how it depicts, how immigrants are treated. Yeah. Uh, we talked about this on that episode where she's sitting at the counter at lunch and the guy behind the counter says, Oh, I love the way you talk. That's so different. That's so cool. Yeah. What that does, it's not a compliment at all to her because it's calling, it's making her feel isolated and it singles her out for something she has no control over. Exactly. Like if she had done something great and someone said, that's great. Awesome. But it's literally like, I just sound like this. And while, you know, and I'm, I probably said this at the time, like I'm married to a redhead and people compliment her hair and you know, she's, she just says like, Oh, thank you very much. But people also feel like they can like touch her hair. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, after a while you're just like, yeah, okay, thank you. She's learned to deal with it. But at the same time, it has nothing to do with her. Right. It's only, it's, it's. It's all surfacy now. Of course, your accent, your hair—that is very important to who you are. Uh, but it also is just people are only seeing the outside. They really don't well, even care who you are. Well, I don't. I don't know. I, I'm not cynical enough to say that most people are that way. That, no, I just I think when that, they do that, that is what they're seeing. Like when strangers. Uh, say I think that. almost every relationship that you've ever had that I've ever had starts at a reductionist level. Sure. It's like you're attracted to somebody, friend, girl, boy, whatever, because of as a common interest, mm-hmm. um, or because they might look like you or because they or because they look so different it's like you want to talk to that person i remember in high school um i was friends with several people who had very few other friends and 
it was because either in my school because they were black mm-hmm. or um, or this one kid wore a jacket every day, no matter what day it was, no matter what the weather was. And I was intrigued. No, I was that kid. But I was kind of that. I wasn't quite that, mm-hmm. but I was I was intrigued in a, almost a literary way. That sounds really pretentious. But I was just interested in people that would not care what mm-hmm. other people thought about them. Like anyone that cared would go, oh, I should probably not wear a jacket every day because yeah. I'm getting pointed out every single day for it. I'm getting made fun of it, even beat up for these kind of things. Hmm. And I was always attracted, to use that word in a, in a non-romantic sense, just attracted to people yeah. who seemed different in that way, and I became friends with them. But that's, that's always started out at that reductionist level. And then you find out more about them, and they become human to you. It's not just that thing about them. Yeah. Um, for Jen, probably one of the first things you noticed about her was her red hair. And why not? Because it's beautiful red hair. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. See, she well. What's interesting is that like the first that time, the first time we ever talked, we had like a big disagreement over uh, remember the Titans. Um, <laughs> like it was at an intervarsity thing, and I was new, and I was talking to various people, and she was uh, she happened to be sitting next to me, and we were talking about remember the Titans, and we had a disagreement. And this I is remember, your, like your first meeting at all, yes. I, I love the fact that your your entire relationship for however long you've been married and known her is predicated on a on a, a movie argument. I love that. Yeah, and one that I'm obviously right about. But the point is, uh, <laughs> um, the point is, uh, yeah, undoubtedly, I'm sure that I uh, noticed her her hair, but I definitely also. I kind of liked, I kind of enjoyed the pushback. Oh, sure. You know, um, that she was a very, she was, there's a boldness to her. Mm-hmm. Now that is also, that could be seen as, as reductive. Um, but it still is like, that has more to do with her as a person. But I also, yeah, of course I, re- I saw the hair and she has, a, I think a very beautiful smile. Aubrey and, and I have this thing we've done almost from day one, not really from very early in our relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're getting along well, and we're, we love each other, even from almost date one. Um, but we'll do this thing. It's like, um, if, if everything about me was the same, but I was morbidly obese, would you still love me? And, of course, that became re- more and more ridiculous. It's right. like, um, if, I, uh, if, if, I, if I smiled like this, and then I would, like, smile just really grotesquely. Everything about me was the same. I said the same stuff. I love the same stuff. I love you. Would you still love me? And we just kind of laugh about it. But right. I wonder. Yeah. I mean, the, the 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 kind of the what that brings you back to, if you really think about it in a serious way, it's just a kind of a sweet joke that we have with each, mm-hmm. with each other. But if you think about it, the reductionist impulse. Um, if if she saw me at church, this is where we met yeah. at church, and I had this grotesque smile, she might not want to meet me. Yeah. Uh, or talk to me if I approached her. So I mean, yeah, the truth she wouldn't is even that know that she lo- would still. If she love knew you. everything about me yeah. before she saw that, if it was just an email relationship or yeah. on the phone or something, and then she saw that, maybe she would look past it a little bit more easily. But if I was the first thing, she's probably going to be a little frightened. Yeah. Um, or if I was morbidly obese or whatever it was, um, yeah. I could say, well, what if I was kind of a shrimpy guy who doesn't look my age? Would you still love me? Probably. Well, thank goodness, because it's exactly who I am. Um, so, I, I forgot what my, what my broader point was there, but I think I was just kind of reacting to the fact that oh, you were saying... because we were talking about Brooklyn and, and her accent and that kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. Yes, and, yes. and, uh, and that movie uh, treats the immigrant experience in a much more subtle way than Paddington, right. for all kinds of reasons, because Paddington is a kid's movie and, and it's Amelie-esque and all that kind of stuff. But it, it fits in with our discussion because it's yeah. definitely 
um, it's brutal. It's emotionally brutal to be a person who doesn't, quote-unquote, belong where they are right away. Well, and that will appropriately get us into our companion film, which is uh, Steven Spielberg's The Terminal, which came out in 2004, uh, a film that I have not seen for a while. I remember liking it, not loving it. I thought that the, I did have some issues with the plot. I, th- I remember thinking it was a little bit too long, but there was a lot mm-hmm. that I did like about it. I think I love Tom Hanks. I usually love Tom Hanks, but I feel like he plays a character that could be seen as dopey. The reason he could be seen as dopey is because he comes in and he speaks very little English, but he's also upbeat and optimistic. So he's not understanding what you're saying, but he's smiling about it. Like mm-hmm. that could be seen as dopey. Sure. Um, but he doesn't, but he doesn't play, he doesn't condescend as an actor. Like he always commits, which is something I love about him. Right. Um, you know, what's odd is, so the art direction for the terminal is astonishing because they built a terminal. They built a, a, an air, an airport terminal. It is pretty amazing. And, but the problem is they built it so well that it's invisible. You actually believe they're just shooting in, in a terminal. Um, so wait, what's the problem with that? Uh, well, as far as, uh, like that should have won an Oscar for art direction, but no, because it's because it's so good. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, But that's, that's as it should be. So Mm -hmm. mission accomplished, uh, not everything has to be Oscars, but at the same time, like that deserves to be recognized, but it's so good. Like the reason it deserves to be recognized is the exact reason it won't be. Sure. Um, which is like uh, editing. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and so, uh, but I, one thing that I do really like about uh, the terminal, first off, I really like the premise. Um, the idea that Tom Hanks is this guy who's visiting New York from Krokosia, and he, and while he is in the air, because it's a long flight, and while he's in the air, there's a military coup in his country, and the new government is not recognized by the United States, and so his passport doesn't mean anything, but he can't go back either. So he just is stuck at the airport and he can't go anywhere. Uh, so that's just where he has to live until everything gets figured out. Until uh, such a time as America recognizes the new government, which right. of course would never happen right? because it was established under military coup. Right. So, uh, so he's there and he's experiencing American culture, but in this weird in between, you know, airports are fascinating to me because they're like little embassies, hmm. like, like it's like there's a country called airport and they're all kind. So whenever you go to an airport, it's like you're entering this country cause they're all kind of the same, um, even internationally. And so, uh, so he, but he's also interacting with, you know, employees and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. And he, and he, one thing that I really like from a writing standpoint and a performance standpoint is that his English gets better. Um, like he's, he understands a lot more. He still has a fairly thick accent, but he, he's able to communicate with people and, um, and he becomes more acclimated to this odd version of America. But one of the things that I, I do think it's unfortunate. I'm a big fan of Stanley Tucci. Uh, but I think that they made his character a little bit too, he's a little one note, um, he almost feels, uh, you recently rewatched the movie. Uh, he almost feels like, uh, 
like the dean of a college in like Animal House or something like that. Like he's just there to enforce the rules and it's like, ah, oh. like he might as well say like. Well, they at least give him a little bit of a justification for that behavior. And that sure. there's a, an inspection team coming right. Uh, right at the time that Tom Hanks is hanging around all the time because right. of the law, because of the rules. Yeah. And so he's trying his best to get Tom Hanks to get out of the airport yeah. by bending the rules before the rule mongers come by, yeah. which is interesting in itself. Yeah. And it's a little, uh, it's a little principal Skinner now that I think of it. And like superintendent Chalmers is coming skin, along. It's yeah. very Skinner-esque. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, the, the two chief, we talked about, um, Paddington being borderline satire. Yeah. I think that, uh, that the terminal is Spielberg trying to be a little satirical. I mean, one of the first moments, um, having just seen it, it's, this stuff is just sort of mm-hmm. like on the top of my head, but, uh, the first, I believe it's the first thing that we see Tucci talking to the other, uh, security guys and cops mm-hmm. in, in the airport in his office. And he kind of sends them out to do their thing in order to make sure that Tom Hanks is doing what he does and their right. safety is insured and all this kind of thing. Well, the door closes, uh, on the scene mm-hmm. and on the camera and the door closes on the camera and it's this big emblem for Homeland Security. Right. And so, okay, so automatically you're going, okay, and it's 2004, so 9-11 oh, yeah. is like still incredibly fresh on people's minds when they see this film in a the theater. And you're going, okay, and, and uh, you know, the Patriot, Patriot Act and all this kind of stuff yeah. is like very, it's fomenting all kinds of frustration in America yeah. at that point. And so just the fact that Spielberg let that be the frame for four seconds or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so Tucci represents what America kind of is now. It's this, um, we're going to batten down the hatches. We're not going to let anyone in that we don't want to let in. Yeah. We're going to make sure that only good people are in America. We're, we're going to make sure, even if we have to bend the rules, mm-hmm. oh, that's, yeah. what, that's what we're going to do. And the, the problem is that Spielberg can't do satire. He can't do yeah. comedy, I'll be honest. I'm just going to say that. A lot of people disagree with me, but that's my feeling. Everything, well, 1941 is kind of growing on me, but it's taken as long as it's been around for it to grow on me. I think it's safe to say he can do comic relief. But I don't think he can do comedy. No, he can't even do comic relief. I'm thinking of Mission, uh, not Mission Impossible, um, uh, the Tom Hanks sci-fi. Uh, Tom Cruise, Minority Report? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Minority Report, where there's comic relief, and it is so cringing. The Storm Air stuff, um, the, the eyes. The, sure. There's a couple of other moments where it's like, oh, this is supposed to be relieving me from the tension of this um, uh, uh, future world of oppression and whatnot. But it's just making me wish that I wasn't watching the movie. See, in a lot of, uh, to me, like a lot of uh, Hooper and Quint back and forth in Jaws uh, is pretty funny. Okay, so he lost his touch. Let's put it that way. Sure. Over the years, he lost his touch. Um, but uh, let's look at, uh, I think because he's sincere, he's a very earnest filmmaker and that hmm. doesn't necessarily lend itself to comedy. No, uh, his, his best movies are the earnest ones. Even something like always, which is not a great movie is yeah. still very earnest and it wins points on that. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Temple of Doom, there's comic relief in that via Kate Capshaw, which doesn't work at all ever in my book. And that's super early. Um, so maybe he was already losing it by then. I don't know. Well, and there's some, I'd say, some culturally insensitive. Uh, oh, that's that's a different yeah. conversation. Well, yeah. I guess it's this conversation. Yeah, honestly. Um, but the terminal, I think, uh, aspires at points to be satire, and it never can be because of the way they've painted Tucci inside of this world. Yeah. That you know, as dictated by Tom Hanks in his performance, yeah. is a real place, and it's it's a real person, Tom Hanks in a situation that is not really satirical because if you, just like you said, if you go to, go to any airport, it is this weird microcosm 
of commerce, yeah. of American commerce, let's say. Um, what American commerce looks like if you just saw the commerce yeah. and there wasn't other like landmarks like you would see in New York City, but there's still, it's just straight shot of commerce. But not even official commerce. It's the kind of commerce that you're meant to deal with quickly. Hmm. Like you're not meant to window shop at the airport. You're meant to, oh, you know what? I just thought of this thing that I might need. I better hurry up and go to this thing and get it yeah. while I'm on my way to somewhere else. Whereas if you go to the mall, everything about it is just hang out here for a while. Maybe you'll yeah. see something you like. Yeah. So it is that, but in a very specific type of context. It's, it's funny how pejorative uh, the tone is with regard to all the businesses that are around him, like uh, the restaurants that we know and love, you mm-hmm. know, we, that we see their actual restaurants. It's not like they had the art department came in and like redesigned. Right names of restaurants or stores, they're all there and we all recognize them. And I'm wondering, I was wondering while I was watching it again last night, I'm like, did these, uh, of course they made, they struck deals with these people to yeah. show their, but did they know or did they think through the fact that their, their, their business was going to be presented in a way that shows the world this way? Meaning maybe they all got together and say like, Hey, are we comfortable with this? And it's like, eh, Spielberg's not very good at satire. It'll be fine. Yeah. It won't come across the way he thinks. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like it, the idea that CEOs are really analytical about film exactly. and they know how directors operate. Well, it kind of reminds me of, uh, this just comes to mind. Uh, did you ever see, uh, this Billy Wilder movie with James Cagney. One, two, three. One, two, three. I have not. I love this movie and it's all about him and, and 1961, 6061. And he's a Coca-Cola salesman mm-hmm. right at the Brandenburg gate, basically. So it's like the East, West Germany line, communism, you know, commercialism, mm-hmm. like dividing line, Brandenburg wall um, gate. And Coca-Cola of course is like, yeah, of course do this, but it's a movie about the, the, the corrupting effect of, yeah commerce or Americanism in another culture. Do they care? Maybe they didn't think it through themselves. Maybe they're like, this is going to actually sell Cokes. Well, the truth is that it is a great satire and it does make that point very beautifully in the movie. And I love the movie for it, but the campaign for the movie, I don't remember it cause I wasn't alive, mm-hmm. but just reading about it. Um, Coca-Cola required them to have these contests where you could like win Coke and, you know, just the kind of things they do now, but to, yeah. in order to drum up business for the movie, Coca-Cola becomes the good guy. Hmm. And it's like, like, yeah, let's see this movie that features us, but while you're at it, go ahead and buy some. And, yeah. and so they kind of win. And oh, sure. the fact that the producers and Billy Wilder and all these guys are like, okay, we'll do that. We'll pay that price, which is basically like taking a, a knife and slicing off a chunk of the power of the satire. If you know that about the movie, yeah. um, it diminishes the impact of it. It's kind of like when when a, a celebrity shows up as themselves on The Simpsons, uh, and like Perfect like when, Mi- when Michael Moore comes on as himself, and he makes the, and it says like, and he gives some stati- some statistic, and someone says, "Where'd you get that from?" And he goes, "Your mother." It's like, <laughs> oh, that's a satire about how Michael Moore mm, kind of fudges his statistics and his facts. Mm. Yeah, but he's in it. He's in yeah. on it now. So yeah. I guess that makes it a little safe. Yeah. You know. It's not, it's not, uh, I don't know if there's a, um, the South Park do the same thing or do they always imitate voices? They almost always imitate voices. See that in, the, in the movie, George Clooney plays, does a voice of like a surgeon who accidentally replaces Kenny McCormick's heart with a baked potato, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I think is funny, Sure, but that's meant to be like, Oh, this is like an ER thing later. 
when George Clooney, when they're sending up the smugness of George Clooney, uh, they, they play, uh, clips of like his Oscar speech. And so they don't bring him in for that. Gotcha. Um, and so in team America where they have Matt Damon mm-hmm. who, and I'm Matt Damon. Uh, yeah. Like, I think Matt Damon had gotten word of that and thought like, Oh, I should like, I'll do it myself. Like I'll, and they said, Nope, that's not how this is going to work. That's not the point we're trying to make. Yeah. So I don't need your help to make fun of you. Yeah. And your, yeah, your entire career. So, um, yeah, I kind of, and I respect them for it. But this movie, Terminal as satire, I don't think works. But as drama, I suppose it does. I don't like the movie, I'll be honest. I don't love the movie. There, it's, it's an example of thing of, I like things about it. and But the things I like about it, I really like about it. I think, uh, I like John Williams' score precisely because it's, pleasant mm-hmm. it's not like a big thing i think it's uh it's something that i feel like i feel like he is undervalued as a subtle composer he's not called upon to be subtle very often but he can be and when he does like the melodies are actually very yeah very like nice the music the movie. um so like the art direction the music i i like most of the performances um it's a ple- it's a very pleasant delightful film which a satire should never be um but putting aside the idea of satire, which I would say it is a failure at that, uh, and just seeing it as like a, a, a nice little comedy, I think I'm perfectly fine with it. But uh, but there is a, a line in here that I that I really like, um, and so at the end of of uh, Stanley Tucci's speech about why. Uh, Tom Hanks can't actually like officially come into the country, nor can he go home, uh, which is, uh, I think written well and delivered pretty well. He ends with saying you at this time are simply unacceptable. Mm. And you know, that is a potent line. Stuff like that works a lot better from a satirical standpoint or like making a point, like the idea of citing a person as unacceptable, like quite literally, like we cannot accept you into this culture. Um, not because he's done anything, you know, uh, I don't get the impression that Stanley Tucci, I don't think he doesn't like, uh, uh, Victor Navorsky, but he has a job to do and he's going to do it. And he doesn't, and to the degree that he does have a heart for Victor's situation, like that is not what, what drives him. And, you know, in talking about like the larger immigration situation, I don't necessarily think that our hearts should drive us completely. Um, because again, there are larger considerations, you know, you don't want to let in someone that's going to destroy everything. Uh, so you want to try and stop that where you can, but at the same time, you can't guarantee everything. And, uh, sometimes, freedom is a bit more important than security. And I know that sounds crazy. And when you're dealing with like your own country's borders, um, I think security is important and you don't actually have a responsibility to people that aren't, uh, that aren't of this, of this nationality. So again, I can see all sides, but I do think that it helps to temper you know, security considerations and, and what might be logical. I think it, I think it helps to temper it with heart and the recognition that these are human beings who have their own cultures. They have their own way of life and chances are they wouldn't be coming over. They wouldn't want to come over here if things were going great. So like they're already probably in a bad situation and 
you know, and then the flip side is you can't necessarily just fling open the doors and say, everyone is welcome, no matter what, we won't do any checks. Mm -hmm. Um, so I do think it, you need a balance. And I would say that by and large, we are not living in a super balanced society at the moment. I think Trump is, uh, hit one of his MOs in this regard is seems to be to want to make everyone believe that it's that second way Yeah, that it's just wide open doors. And we have to make sure that we close them at least a little bit, right? If not all the way. But that's such a black and white, you know, just like yeah, ridiculous. Talk about reductivism. Um, so I did want to read a few uh, verses here, and here's something that I found fascinating. I did not mean to do this, but you'll notice you'll notice a theme here. I've got uh, three passages: one from Leviticus, one for De- one from Deuteronomy, and one from Exodus. So Leviticus 19 verses 33 and 34. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. All right. Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Exodus 23, 9. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. Okay, so they keep coming back to that. And what I think, what I like about these, like, I mean, it's repetitive when you put them all together like that, is it's a reminder that, you know, you and I have, uh, we have stories about being in other countries, but we haven't gone to live there. But it's saying, it's essentially something like, draw on your own experiences. You know what this is like in some capacity. So do that and maybe try to tap into some empathy here um, and treat other people the way you would like to be treated, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you were to go to another country and break somebody's washer, you know, how would, how would you like to be treated? Okay. Well now treat other people that way. Um, and, uh, and then lastly, I will uh, quote Matthew twenty five forty. truly, I tell you, whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Um, so, you know, with with uh, Paddington and, you know, to a lesser extent, the terminal, like we're dealing with characters that in some capacity are unacceptable, um, as the, the character in the terminal says. Um, in the case of Victor Navorsky, Tom Hanks's character, it's because of a situation about having to do with his country, not nothing really having to do with him. And if everything went fine, he would be he would be acceptable and he would be accepted. Um and then with Paddington, he's unacceptable because he is unpredictable. And and thus, we need to protect ourselves from whatever havoc he might uh, wreak. Um, but we do have a responsibility as Christians to extend courtesy and love to really anybody that could be seen as an outsider. And that could be even within the culture. You know, here it talks about widows and orphans. Um, and people are always quick to say that uh, Jesus, you know, met with tax collectors, lepers, and prostitutes. And it's worth, you know, worth mentioning that. But we also need to think about, okay, well, who are literally any outsider, I would say, anybody who is in a situation where they are alone. Um, okay, this is going to sound, I, I, this is, is going to sound dumb. So please just, uh, 
bear with me. I'm always prepared for it. I recognize, fair enough. Uh, I re- this is the kind of thing that loses me Oscar, uh, uh, loses me podcast awards, which I'm set to lose another one in about three hours, which Ooh. is very exciting. Uh, you mean a month and a half ago? Oh yeah. By this, yeah, by this time, you know that I've lost. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, uh, although I'm holding out hope, otherwise why would I know that it's mm. today? Um, so the sto- this story that I'm going to tell is just take it with a grain of salt. All right. Okay. I'm not saying poor me, uh, going back to school and then just sitting in rooms with 15 other people. Um, I am the only conservative in the room. Hmm. I'm the only Christian in the room and I'm also way older than everybody else. Uh, in maybe the same age as the instructor. Hmm. Um, and so now that's, and, and the thing is this, like I'm, I'm not saying poor me, but I definitely was aware that I was different than everyone else. Um, and, but when people knowing what I believed and knowing who I was and knowing that I was just this old curmudgeon, um, they still reached out and I've still hung out with a number of them. And, uh, and I remember election night, which at this, at this point was almost a year ago. Um, they, so the day after the election and it did not go the way anybody expected. And they know that I was not a Trump person, but they also knew that I was conservative. And like, I went in expecting like, all right, this is going to be rough. Uh, but the class was just, you know, we just talked about school stuff. And then afterwards I was going to, I was walking to the bus and everybody was kind of crowded out, crowded around outside. And as I was walking by, they said like, Tyler, come here. We want to talk to you. I was like, okay, here we go. (laughs) And we proceeded to have like a 90 minute conversation (laughs) in which they said like, we don't, we don't really know that many people that would consider voting for Trump or consider voting for Republican at all. Can you explain some of this to us? Hmm. And they listened. And, you know, on a day like that, I can absolutely understand why someone would not want to listen to a Republican. I probably wouldn't. Um, You're like Nixon on the steps of the the Washington (laughs) Monument (laughs) that night. (laughs) All, Um, All the hippies gather around. Exactly. Um, but it was, but it meant so much to me. And in that moment for like, for the briefest of moments, because, uh, while a lot of my fellow conservatives would be reluctant to you to say that white privilege is a thing, I think it is. Um, and as a, let's see, white, straight Christian conservative male, Mm -hmm. um, things are mostly okay for me. I don't have to worry that much about the system being against me. Um, but in going to school, I'm in the midst of a situation where I am very much the minority. Uh, I'm not an oppressed minority by any stretch, but I feel uncomfortable. And they made me feel comfortable and they made, and they made me, and I was listened to. I wasn't agreed with, but I was listened to. And, and it really, like, it meant so much to me. And I felt from then on, I felt like I was a part of that school and I felt, and I, and now I'm kind of, now I'm proud to be a part of UCLA. Before it was just like ah, this grad school thing. Who cares? But now I'm, you know, I'm I'm taking this quarter off because Jen and I are, you know, taking this trip. Or at this point, we are on the trip, um, and I miss it. 
Oh. And the next quarter I'm going and it will be my last quarter. And it kind of bums me out that oh. I'm not going to continue going. But uh, You can always give them more money for more classes. I could do that, but that seems ill-advised uh, financially. Um, and so in my own limited way, and please don't think I'm saying more than I am. I'm not saying like, well, because I went to school as a conservative, I absolutely know what it is to be a Muslim immigrant into you know, right. a Muslim refugee. No. That's not what I'm saying. But, but that's the thing is I would say, do whatever you can. You know, these Bible verses keep invoking uh, Egypt and it says like, hey, you remember what this is like. So use that. And so I would say whatever in your life, like even if it's a small thing, like starting a new job and everybody knows what to do except you tap into that, you know, uh, Sanford Meisner, Sanford Meisner would call it sense memory, you know, where you go, you, you think back to a part of, of your life that is similar to what you are dealing with now and remember how you were feeling and use that. And in, you know, he would talk about in empathizing with a character and replicating that emotion. And I would say, use that to, to empathize with, you know, as it says here, you know, foreigners and immigrants and just outsiders. Uh, so at some point, everyone has, has been an outsider, even in a, in a very limited capacity. But use that to at least try to have a heart, even if you still come to the same political conclusions. Um, at least I think the conclusions would be a bit more earned and would probably be a bit more humane in the execution of those. So that's kind it's of called empathy. Thought. It's called empathy. Um, we could all stand for a little bit more of that. Yeah. Sympathy is good. Empathy is also very, very good. Sympathy, mm -hmm. I think, will only carry you so far in helping someone. Empathy, you will, there will, I, I feel like there will be a sense of urgency to Obviously, that. empathy is harder because empathy implies that you haven't necessarily experienced the thing. Yeah. You're literally, not literally, you're, the definitionally, you're, putting yourself in that person's shoes yeah, um, and thinking, using your imagination, your God-given God -given imagination to think, oh my gosh, that would be hard yeah. to do. And, you know, and Jesus says that when you, when you do this to the, to the least of these, you know, when you reach out to people as he did, um, that uh, you are doing it uh, as to him. And so uh, in the spirit of that, let's, Keep that in mind. So we're, we're emulating Jesus, but we're also uh, kind of getting at the heart of Jesus and what it is to be uh, to be a Christian. So, can I make one little point? By all means. Um, going back to Paddington, okay. this doesn't apply to um, Terminal because it's a, a very specific moment in Paddington that I felt like had some salience with regard to spiritual sure. implications. Um, at the beginning, the, again, the, the platform scene, the family's going by. And, uh, and they stop, they talk to Paddington. Paddington's sitting there, they go, what is your name? And he does that roar thing, which is very cute and sweet. Mm -hmm. he go, they go, well, we can't say that. And they look around, they figure out they, they, wanted, they wanted to call him something. Mm -hmm. So it's Paddington Station, so they call him Paddington. Yeah. And from that moment on, he's Paddington. And I thought to myself, um, now that they've named him, um, they're sunk. He's, he's part of the family. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a, a, a true true of probably you know any family, um, yeah. church family or work family, whatever it is. You come into this group, and once they've called you by name, yeah, or um, or given you a name. I'm not talking about getting a nickname or something. You're right. feeling like chummy or anything, but just the fact of being named. 
And spiritually speaking, it's the same. It's like God has given us a name. God, yeah. God has said that we are His. And yeah. um, once you embrace that, then you are in the family. Yeah, which sounds kind of creepy if you put it that way. I'm in the I'm in the family. Yeah. Um, oh, I was going I was going cult with it, but that's sure. fine. Like you, the Manson you, family, <laughs> even that. Yeah, the family. Um, um, but yeah, so I, that was just kind of a when I saw that moment, I was like, that's cool because I can apply that to my own life, my own belief. And the film ends on that note. Like I wrote this down. This is the last bit. Uh, so Paddington is writing a letter to his aunt and he says, Mrs. Brown says that in London, everyone is different. And that means anyone can fit in. I think she must be right because although I don't look like anyone else, I really do feel at home. I'll never be like other people, but that's all right because I'm a bear, a bear called Paddington. There you go. Perfect. Like he ends. Yeah affirming his name mm -hmm. the name um, that they gave him that wasn't his yeah to start with yeah um looking forward to paddington too i am i'm nervous i believe it's the same director correct it is different okay. writer i believe okay different writer that could be that could be rough at the very least i'm sure the filmmaking will have that nice uh sure. vitality and fluidity yeah. so uh but i'm always leery of sequels but at the same time hey Babe Pig in the City there you go. is pretty great. So, uh, so yeah, I am looking forward to it. Good. Um, in the meantime, uh, thank you everybody for uh, listening to this episode. You're welcome to. We've talked a lot about uh, politics uh, in this episode, so feel free to weigh in uh, in the comments section. Uh, please be polite, and especially if somebody come, if somebody writes something that you don't like you have to be polite to them. That's how it works. All right, and uh, please be polite to us because I'm not in the mood. Uh, a month ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I predict I will be less in the mood. Uh, mm. um, although at the same time, I won't read these comments for probably two more weeks uh, <laughs> from this point. So anyway, um, yeah, you can check us out on Facebook. Um, you can like, uh, you can like us on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. Uh, you can email me Tyler at more than one lesson.com and, uh, be sure to check on, uh, to, to click on the link to faith life TV. Uh, if you go to more than one lesson.com and click on that, you get a free month after that. It's only four 99 and it features a number of, uh, really great documentaries and series and lectures and just re a, a number of resources for, uh, for Christian study and entertainment. So, uh, so check that out. Thank you everybody for listening. Robert, thank you for being here. You got it. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.